Greetings, wizards. We need your help. We've got a listener survey out right now. It's very short. It should take you no more than five to ten minutes of your time, and it'll really help us make the show better for you and for all the little elixir wizards out there listening. And in exchange for filling out this survey, we've got a special 50% off discount code, good for all products and all formats over at Manning Publications, that we'd love to share with you. So head on over to smr.tl slash podcast survey to fill that out. We have a link to the survey in the show notes as well, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Welcome to a special edition of Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my regular co-host, Eric Ostrich. How are you, Eric? Doing great. And I'm very pleased to announce we are also joined by Smart Logic's newest Elixir Wizard, Sunday Mint. How are you, Sunday? Good. How are you guys? Doing terrific. Today's episode is a little different from our regularly scheduled programming because Live ViewConf, I mean ElixirConf 2020, is right around the corner, September 3rd and 4th to be precise. We wanted to do a little preview of the conference featuring several of the speakers that are on the docket for ElixirConf 2020. And first up, we are joined by Quinn Wilton from Quinn. I didn't even get where you worked. I'm actually at Synopsys right now. We were recently acquired. I was at a startup named Tinfoil Security before. Uh, I really want to ask about tinfoil security. <laughs> um, actually, yeah, can we just start there real quick? What yeah, is sure. Tinfoil? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we do dynamic security scanning for web applications, web APIs, and that sort of thing. And the idea is that we plug that into your software development lifecycle so that developers can find and fix vulnerabilities as early as possible. Okay. So basically, we were doing that with this big distributed Elixir pipeline that would read in your API specifications and then generate fuzz tests against your API, uh -huh. look for SQL injection and things like that. And who's the comedic genius that came up with the name? That would have been the founder. Uh, he goes by Borsky. <laughs> okay, well, Borsky, shout out, man. Good branding work there. And you work at Synopsys right now. Do you want to quickly plug that? I mean, we'll give you time at the end too, so feel free to do what you want. But, okay, yeah. cool. So the team that I was on at Tinfoil, we got acquired by Synopsys. So we're kind of continuing what we were working on with Tinfoil at Synopsys now. But the idea is that Synopsys is a much larger security company than we ever aspired to be. They have teams doing static analysis and software composition analysis and things like that. So kind of the goal is for all of us to build all of these different security verticals and integrate them into one really holistic security scanning solution. So I'm now continuing a lot of the dynamic analysis work that I was doing, but with the idea of integrating it with every other aspect of security that we can automate. That's awesome. So is there something in particular that you're doing at work that kind of inspired your talk or is it completely unrelated? Yeah, a little bit. So with dynamic analysis, it ends up being a pretty theory heavy area of software development. So there's a lot of data structures I'm working with, algorithms that are really finicky to implement. And that sort of thing is kind of a mixed bag in Elixir. Because on one hand, Elixir is easily the most productive programming language I've ever used. It has a really consistent API, really great dev tooling, and so on. But the fact that it's dynamically typed means that I'm not always super confident that my code does what I think it does. And at the same time, that's not necessarily a trade-off that I'm willing to make if it means giving up all the other benefits that Elixir has to offer. I don't want to just throw Elixir away and grab something like Haskell or Idris. That's just going to be completely overkill for my needs. 
So kind of the dream for me with Elixir has always been being able to leverage the Elixir ecosystem for all of the concurrency and fault tolerance needs that I need, but then dropping down to a smaller statically typed language for the really hard business logic or really hard data structures, the algorithms that I really want guarantees are on regarding consistency and things like that. And so that was kind of the impetus for me starting to investigate Gleam and how I could uh, get it to interrupt with Elixir really well. I am doing a little bit of live view at work, but really the live view portion of my talk is just meant to be a really cool demo of how uh, this symbiosis between Elixir and Gleam really does work in practice and you can do some really cool things with it. Cool. For me, and I'm sure lots of people out there, could you maybe give us a quick explanation of what Gleam is? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I kind of did this backwards. No worries, uh, yeah. <laughs> is that, that something that we can like flip around later if it works you know out. this show sometimes is like inception so we but <laughs> <laughs> who knows yeah. yeah yeah so gleam is another programming language written by a guy named lewis in the uk and it compiles down to erlang but has a static type system that has type inference like something like haskell would and is really meant to i don't know i've heard people describe it as like a love language between like haskell and swift but is basically trying to make static typing much more approachable to people who don't necessarily have a deep CS background or experience with things like Haskell. But then because it compiles down to Erlang, it is very easy to use it within an existing Erlang app or an existing Elixir application. Are you using this like in a NIF or something? No, no actually, because it just no? compiles down to Erlang, you can call it from Elixir as if it were just an Erlang function. Okay, so... Sunday is reminding me that we didn't even tell the audience about the name of your talk because it kind of jumped right into it, which is how the show goes sometimes, by the way. The name of your talk is Type Safe Live View with Gleam. Maybe we could break down some of the words there. Sure. I also don't want to give away too much of your talk. I'm sure you've been working really hard on it, and it's really trying to save it for people who are attending ElixirConf. Go buy a ticket. So, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, please like kind of deconstruct that title a little bit and tell us what we're in for. Yeah, let's see. So what was it? It was Type Safe Elixir with or type safe live view with Gleam. So uh, when I'm talking about type safety, mm -hmm. I'm basically talking about leveraging the compiler to get compiled time guarantees about what your code is, what it's doing, what sorts of assurances that code can make, and what sorts of assumptions you can assume were hold at runtime. That can be things as simple as, I expect this variable to always be an integer or this variable to always be a string. And I think that's normally what people think of when they think about things like type safety. But really, type safety can lead to so many more benefits as it relates to modeling your business logic and ensuring that your application never ends up in inconsistent states or impossible states and things like that. So that first piece of my talk title is basically about leveraging the type safety of another programming language, Gleam, in order to write live view applications that are easier to reason about and prove properties about than the equivalent Elixir code would be. Man, this was a great, great person to bring in for the first, first part. <laughs> this is just, to me, it's exciting, like different languages in the mix. Live view is obviously super hot. Eric was telling me in our back channel that my live view conf joke did not land. <laughs> so we'll have to re-record that. <laughs> what, can you tell us a little bit about like the process of kind of putting together a talk for the conference and what you may have learned or discovered that was maybe not going to make it in the talk that you were super duper excited or surprised by? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this has been kind of an adventure for me. This is the first large English conference I've ever spoken at. Hmm. I spoke once in Korea, but the audience didn't speak English, so I don't think it mattered. And so I haven't really had any idea what I have been doing as I wrote this talk. And one of the big learnings has been that I only have half an hour, but there's probably like a month worth of content I want to get through. So I am kind of in this like vicious spiral right now of writing more and more demos, showing off all the things that I want to do, but I haven't actually started any of my slides yet. And I think I really... You haven't started your slides yet? No, I keep changing my mind on what I want to talk about because I keep getting better at Gleam and better at Elixir and learning more things I want to show off. That's <laughs> so amazing. I really need to kind of switch that around and cut down the scope of my talk and make the presentation first, I think. Uh, I'm laughing <laughs> with you because this is exactly how I did my talk like in 2017. So <laughs> I will... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> We'll also admit I have about four slides that are copy pasted from ones I've done previously, so that doesn't really count. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard the same from other people. I think this might kind of be a really common problem. If you're talking about something you're really excited about, you don't really want to take the time to slow down and kind of distill what you're learning into something for other people when you just want to keep going and learning more. So I guess next time I do this, I will try to slow down quicker so that I can kind of put together the context for what I want to talk about and make sure I have a finished product by the time the conference is ready. <laughs> Slow down quicker. I, I love that. Slow down um, quicker. Yeah, I guess yeah. that's what I said. <laughs> you put this really nicely like, oh, like I need to take more time to think about how it's going to go, right? Because I'm really passionate about the subject. Like, well, I'm just procrastinating. So <laughs> yeah. I keep talking to a friend of mine and he's like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, oh, I started work on the disassembler that I'm going to be showing off. And he's like, Sorry, you're working on a disassembler now? Or have you done any slides yet? <laughs> what is a disassembler? Oh, okay. So one of the demos that I'm giving off during my talk, actually, I was trying to think of things that are really difficult to do in dynamically typed languages. And one of the things that came to mind was like virtual machines or emulators, programming languages, that sort of thing. So there's a old programming language from, I want to say the 70s, called Chip 8, that was designed to run on some very old like hardware gaming consoles, basically could play games like Tetris, Space Invaders, Pong, that sort of thing. And so I am building a virtual machine for that language in Gleam that I am then rendering in live view so that people can visit my site and play all these old games inside their browser using like a live view driver that is calling out to Gleam for all of the CPU emulation stuff. But as I was doing that, I, of course, started running into bugs where uh, some of my instructions wouldn't work properly and so on. So clearly, the next step was to write a disassembler for this programming language so that I could find where my code was going wrong. And then I just kind of went down the rabbit hole of building more and more tooling to work with this programming language and to debug the program that I was trying to show off for Elixir Conf that was probably far too ambitious to choose as a demo for a 30-minute talk. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so, so one thing to make sure you don't do is like live demos is like it's a little different now that it's virtual i guess because it you probably have hardwired or at least less overloaded wi-fi yeah but that's definitely like you don't want to do too many demos <laughs> i think i might pre-record the demos just in case i need to play that recording that's uh, smart. i've had that advice from a few other people now and i think it's probably the right call yeah this site with all the games it's not up yet is it uh, is, it, is it like launching at the talk? There is a very work in progress GitHub repo 
up, okay. but I don't have it hosted anywhere yet. Okay, because we do play games on the show sometimes, just like in the middle of the show. So <laughs> it's not quite ready. You can see the games, you can run some of them. Space Invaders works a little bit. Yeah, right now one of the things that I am trying to figure out is how to get clock timings and input handling to work really well with Live View so that I can have the CPU running at the correct speed while reading user input from the user, like a consistent rate and so on, but without overloading the process mailboxes by sending like process to the live view instance every like two milliseconds to like render a new frame or something. I'm doing a lot of work there right now to try to get that a little more reliable. So if you were to play it right now, I think some of the input handling would be a bit finicky. Cool. That's just wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I actually, my girlfriend and I went to the beach on the weekend, but I couldn't stop coding. So I had my laptop on the beach working on it. <laughs> You're going to have a lot of people at the stock. Like everyone, this is great. Yeah. Don't tell do. me that. I'm nervous enough as it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> no one's going to show up. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's, that's exactly what I want. <laughs> All right, so I guess to we'll kind of save the rest of, of your talk for your talk. So go buy a ticket and see the rest of this during the conference. What is another talk that you're excited about, though? Yeah, so there's one that Steve Bussey is giving, and I really hope I said your name right, Steve. It is, I don't remember the exact name, but it is about how Elixir and monoliths are a really great fit for each other. I don't know exactly what he's going to be talking about, but some of the cliff notes that he's given me make it sound like it's going to be a really enlightening talk. And yeah, I don't want to spoil too much of what he's talking about, and I don't know too much, but I think the idea is to be a little bit of a pushback against the move towards microservices for everything, and instead leveraging a lot of the properties that the Beam gives you, and Elixir in particular for project organization, to build really cleanly separated monoliths that have the benefits of microservices, without the deployment overhead. Mm. You just and, sold me. I'll be there. Yeah, it's it's something I'm very excited about personally, and Steve is an incredibly smart guy, so I'm sure the talk is going to go over very well, and that's one of the first ones I'm going to make sure I make. And that's the joy of an Elixir monolith. Yes, thank you. Where are you calling us from, Quinn? I am calling from the Bay Area, California. Oh, wicked. Yeah, no, Steve's going to give a great talk. He was on the show this season, and was much beloved by the audience. So I'm sure that his talk will be, and I've seen him talk before and he's just a, a great speaker. So mm -hmm. uh, is there anything else that you would want to share about? Like, I mean, we're trying to be like protective of people's talks, you know, because we don't want to give things away. But at the same time, if there are things that you want to share that you can sort of like preview. Yeah. So like we touched on earlier, my talk is very much a work in progress with a, yeah. about a week and a half left to go. So yeah. I don't know that there's too much I can spoil. Yeah. Based on what I have said so far, what sounds most or least interesting to you? Is there stuff that you would like to hear more about? Well, we're definitely planning on having like a static versus dynamic typing, like Royal Rumble here eventually, mm -hmm. featuring people who have strong opinions on that. So that's fun. <laughs> Just yeah. participating in that battle. But also like Gleam sounds super interesting to me. I don't know, Eric. I did this uh, like writing your own VM and including a disassembler is <laughs> I think yeah, it's Yeah, I think the that's what I know. Yeah, I think that's what I know the least about. So I think okay. I'd be most interested in seeing that. But just because I I recognize that as the word that I didn't know the most. <laughs> Fortunately, it's a fairly small instruction set. So as far as emulators go, it's probably the easiest one you could implement. Mm -hmm. 
my goal there was mostly to demonstrate that this kind of like Gleam Elixir combination I'm experimenting with is useful for more than just your really basic trivial Hello World apps. So I would still like to have another demo in there in the middle that's maybe closer aligned with what people normally use Phoenix for. Uh, I haven't decided what that will be yet. It might be writing like a a little chat server with the chat server written in Gleam and then called from Live View or something. I'm still working on some of the details there, but really what I want to be showing off is kind of like this like ladder of complexity where I start with a really basic demo to show off how the interop works in the first place, move on to something more immediate that might represent what people do on a daily basis with Elixir, and then finish off with the emulator as just kind of an argument against the idea that Gleam is a very new language without a large ecosystem or community mm -hmm. and trying to kind of fight against the idea that that means that it's not useful for real complicated work. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited by the emulator from that aspect of things. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to wrap it up here so we can move on to an, the next segment, but definitely we want to give you a few minutes to plug anything that you want. Shameless self-promotion is encouraged. So the floor is yours. Okay. Yeah, I guess this is probably to be expected, but right now the thing I'm most excited about is honestly Gleam. I got involved with it a couple months ago after Code Beam, I think, mm -hmm. and it's an extremely welcoming community. There's probably only a dozen or so of us writing Gleam regularly, but we get a lot of work done. The issue tracker is always getting new issues added to it that are accessible to uh people who don't know Rust or have never built a programming language or worked on a compiler themselves before. Mm -hmm. And it's just a really welcoming environment for kind of getting your hands dirty with a lot of these really cool ideas like parsing or uh, type checking and that sort of thing. And if that's something you're interested in, like we would love your help on any of the things that we are working on. And there's a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe. Tight. That was a great plug. Really good <laughs> plug. Yeah, you know, people sometimes don't know what they're going to plug. They don't know how they're going to pitch it. You did a great job. That's super. super. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, Quinn, thank you so much for coming on the show, and we're looking forward to your talk at ElixirConf 2020. Yeah, thank you for hosting me. It was a great time. Yeah, thanks for being here. Next up, we've got Dan Lindeman from Very back on the show from the last time we had him on on a live show. His talk is titled "Short Circuit IoT Development Time." with nerves dan so glad to have you back hey really glad to be here thanks for having me again yeah we were a little bit surprised that you accepted because like the show is so traumatic to be on <laughs> like and i understand there's a lot of pressure a lot of people watching so no, thank yeah. you for i was really nervous if i would get an invite back at any point in time so uh super excited how's grand rapids by the way uh, we're doing okay it's yeah. been super nice weather i actually get to be outside which is a good change of pace and super hot usually pretty muggy summer so yeah, just trying to get outside as much as I can. Obviously, I'm currently outside, but I'm soon enough to. Nice. So, Dan, we would love to know if you could give us like a, a general what's your talk about and what might we learn or get out of it yeah. if we are able to attend. Yeah. So the 10,000 foot view is it's about development patterns and just kind of ways that we approach things. So I work at Very. It's an IoT consultancy. I mean, kind of the joke there is that, you know, you have like full stack and then you have like full list stack. Um, because we'll go all the way from like hardware and then straight through your full stack. And then we also prepare data pipelines and data engineering for machine learning and those sort of things. So we're basically just take your regular everyday stack and extend it by a lot. And so the thing that you learn when you do that a lot is that you kind of already have most of the toolkit. 
at the ready. And so this is like this, and from a 10,000 foot view, just telling you it's either the most or least informative talk because it just tells you things that you already know, um, but kind of translates them into you know, the world of MIT. A lot of the talk will be about the hardware aspects of it. Since this project did have you know the custom hardware that we built, you know, based off of some community boards, but we built a nerve system for it. So then, input view, it's kind of unsing the hardware IoT development cycle and just kind of realizing it was like best practice web development all along. The Scooby Doo villain. <laughs> yes, we can all get like the easy things to get wrong, which there are a ton. Just like you don't have to develop on Raspberry Pi to develop for a Raspberry Pi. And that's kind of one of the things about uh, nerves and you know, Elixir that you can do. You can play around in the sandbox just like you always do, but then you can kind of like parse down your deploy, make your build artifacts really tiny because you're making firmware you don't get to be really big. So you know, that's one of them. Uh, and then once you've kind of customized your system, you know, what can you do with those things? Talk a lot about for this project, since it's a solar microgrid, they get deployed to some pretty remote locations. You said solar microgrid? Yeah. So this is a component in a solar microgrid. I won't name names yet because it's in fully and everything. But um, yeah, so the deployments are devices that are in very remote locations. We're talking small villages in Africa. We're talking you know remote locations in like possibly Canada, things like that. And so you might not get internet unless it gets brought to you in a backpack via satellite for a little while. And so, you know, there's kind of um, some of the things we did were checking, do we have the internet? And surprisingly, they're very familiar to anybody who's developed any other application that uses Linux. So I wanted to ask a little bit about that, which is who is the ideal audience for this talk in terms of experience level with hardware or firmware or IoT? At first, I, I definitely... Yeah, right, exactly. The fullest stack, right? At first, I thought that this would be advanced only. But as I kept kind of thinking about what what the real good bits were to take home, it seems appropriate for anybody. I was like, oh, well, I mean, mature beginner dev would, would say, yeah, you know, I've heard about test-driven development. I've heard about verifying things from software docs. Really, just none of the things that you're learning at any stage are all that much different. You just sort of have to learn to speak the language of, you know, your nearest name. Just like it's nice to be JavaScript aware if you're doing, you know, a Phoenix app, or it's really nice to understand your operations if you're deploying a backend. Knowing how to kind of chat the lingo with the next neighboring layer is always a good skill set. So um, we just talk about some of the things, you know, when you're developing hardware or novel hardware, especially for nervous devices. So I've got two questions. First one, please tell me that you are or will soon have a slide that has a Scooby-Doo villain getting the mask pulled off. <laughs> yeah, I think that's absolutely kind of uh, uh, the theme of the talk, right? Which is the things you didn't know you already knew. And so, yeah, I will, for you specifically, even if I didn't already have the slide prepared, I'm going to pretend like I definitely had that slide prepared. Yeah. Perfect. We'll <laughs> awesome. And then second, was there anything like as part of this? So it sounds like you probably knew most of it going in, but was there like anything that you learned while putting this together that was like surprising to you or anything like that? 
I would say for myself on this project, I've been on a handful of IoT projects, but I got to work uh, with Justin Schneck and Daniel Spofford, and working with those two is just having your brain attached to a rocket. So I would, I would kind of feel like I got to learn almost everything. And Justin has a really good way of kind of uh, taking the topics and saying, well, like, well, you know, this is the way the one thing works, but it really works like this the other way. So I felt like I was just learning a ton. I also got to um, spend a lot more time in hardware docs than I thought that I would. And yeah, the thing that that's kind of juicy there is that like software docs lie all the time. Um, and Uber isn't any different. We're all terrible at documenting how things work. I feel like hardware docs, at least to me, they they feel like they would be a lot worse just because if it seems like it would be like a 200 page PDF with like size five font. Yeah, we do a little bit better with like lots of tables. Yeah, software does a lot better at making them something that's like easier to navigate, like hex docs or something where you're just kind of like poking around a website. They are PDFs. They're all multi megabyte, almost gigabyte PDFs. That much is true. So navigation is a little bit more difficult, but. But I imagine know, they change less, yeah? Yeah. Put them yeah. That's, that's a really nice thing is that. Well, you can get a good, pretty good picture of what's going on with one. They'll all be pretty close to similar. Yeah, because they have different tolerances and things like that. But yeah, and then I think probably the last thing that I was really grateful to learn was that these, the like parts of our deployment and development process actually had a nice story-like narrative, which is always really helpful when you're writing a talk, that they all kind of tied into one another. Yeah, I would say I, every project you always learn a ton. And this particular project just had a nice, nice through line that you could pull out and say, look, it's, I think that hardware and IoT development is very scary. Like when I first cut my teeth testing automotive infotainment systems. How did you cut your teeth? Were there just, like <laughs> wires involved? Or? Yeah, no, not <laughs> the figurative cut my teeth, but sorry, no, the, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> But I miswired something, and we actually had a the fire alarm pulled. And so this was kind of the first foray into hardware. So like, I know how scary it is because I think that was my first year as a developer of anything. And you know, you often don't fire alarm pulled on you. That happens less nowadays, which is great. That has to be a similar feeling to like deleting a production database. <laughs> <laughs> It is a similar feeling, especially when you're outside with your colleagues and you're just kind of sitting there like it's the it's the hot feeling on your cheeks <laughs> and like the back of your neck where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to go home now. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'm going to be silent and really touchy for the next couple of hours. So, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's scary, but it doesn't have to be so bad. You can use the tools that you know about to make it less scary. We use TDD to reduce risk in software. Yeah, I'm excited that you're kind of saying that and you're taking that approach as somebody who's never worked in hardware or gotten a chance to work with nerves. That's really cool that you're kind of branching out to all different levels to as the target audience for your talk. So that's really cool. Yeah, I you know, I think it's very important to have kind of little breadcrumbs for the the folks who are already into hardware and, and firmware development, but broad large, I mean the only way we can grow our ecosystem is by having new people try it out. So Every talk can't be for the most advanced of the most advanced, right? At some point in time, we got to get some new people, especially too when when you're working like a framework like Nerves or working with Nerves Hub, right? One thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that a way to give back to an open source project is by using it and having problems with it. 
even if you're just commenting on an issue that's like, oh, I saw that too. I was using, you know, the Beagle Bone, whatever. And uh-huh. anybody else, even, you know, dog rolling on an issue and having more information is, is a huge way to get back. So. I think this is primarily how I contribute to open source. <laughs> <laughs> the, submitting issues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I tried something, it didn't work. Anybody else? And yeah, there's probably dozens. Nice. So I'm curious, is there another talk at ElixirConf that you're really excited to hear about? Yeah. So besides my teammates' talks, so Jen Gamble also works at Barry and, and Justin Scheck. I'm always excited to see friends of my colleagues up on the stage. But Julian Lin has a talk about Elixir making her a better Java dev. I'm very much like a chocolate and peanut butter type person. I think that different languages help us learn and understand the world better and learn and understand computers better. So also I'm like a Linista sometimes. So I'm very excited just to see other languages poking around in, in Elixir land. Awesome. That is an awesome sort of little shout out you did for your colleagues there. I like that. That was very subtle <laughs> and very well done. I want to give you some time though to wrap up and sort of plug anything that you want. A shameless self-promotion is encouraged. So the floor is yours. Yeah. So my SoundCloud, you should check it out. I'm just kidding. I don't uh, not, uh, do. not, yeah, uh, there's no SoundCloud. <laughs> I would say the main thing I'm looking to kind of get across was, was really the main big lesson. And we already mentioned it earlier at the top of the segment was Developing nerves projects can be done on your laptop. The idea of you don't have to do it in a pie to make it for a pie is just, you can get used to it. It's very familiar to you. It's very elixir-y. You don't have to make the full plunge. And if you want to start getting LEDs to blink and stuff like that, sure, yeah, buy the thing. But you can get your feet wet and you can get pretty far into the nerves ecosystem on your laptop. So. I'd say that's kind of a plug. Use Nerves. Um, use Nerves Hub if you're going to be maintaining. Hopefully, makes a lot of the things that are easier to get right. So Awesome. Dan Lindemann, thank you so much for coming back on the show. He's working over at Very, and his talk is titled Short Circuit IoT Development Time with Nerves. Next up, we've got Jeffrey Utter from Bleacher Report. His talk is titled Debugging Live Systems on the Beam. Thank you for joining us, Jeffrey. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody really asks us, you know? <laughs> That's nice. I feel like I'm on the other side of the table. So you're calling us from Topeka. You've got this talk in debugging live systems on the beam. I think this is probably something a lot of people are going to be interested in. Do you want to give us like the thousand foot view, the elevator pitch for your talk? Sure, I can do that. So yeah, debugging live systems on the beam what we're really talking about is kind of your last line of defense in troubleshooting production systems. You know, a lot of people have good logging in place and maybe some like APM stuff or tracing through Datadog or something like that. But sometimes problems arise that like you just don't have the info that you need to figure out what's going on and how to track down the problems. So yeah, the talk goes through some tools that are built into the beam and one library that's built on top of the tools that are built into the beam to get some introspection into systems while they're running. And if you'd like, I can kind of go into a scenario of like when you might reach for said tools, which I'll talk about in a second. So I'm sure most people building stuff on the beam deal with asynchronous stuff, either like tasks or 
their processing background jobs and maybe Oban or something like that, or dealing with Kafka, RabbitMQ, something like that, right? Things happen outside the, the path of a web request. Occasionally, you'll get into a situation where like the web request works fine. A user makes a request to, I don't know, like pay for something, right? And it's supposed to trigger some behavior on the back end, maybe update some values in the database or something, but it doesn't happen, right? You look at your logs, nothing. Everything looks good. You look at your tracing, it shows there's traces, but they're all green. Everything looks good and happy, right? So something is going wrong, but maybe it's not wrong enough to like raise an exception. Could be a business logic bug or something like that. What a lot of people do, and I know I used to do this back when I worked in Ruby, your line of defense is like, inserting log statements, right? And then like deploying the production and kind of playing like log whack-a-mole, right? But the Beam has some really great tools built into like introspect running systems. There's in the sys module, there's the trace function, which is kind of what everything else is built on top of. It's really low level and probably not the tool you want to reach for when you get into these kind of situations, but it can do a few things. Like you can tell it to trace a certain module, like a function in a module whenever it gets called and do something with that, right? That's kind of the where the danger can be in, with that. And there's also the debug module, which builds on top of that a little bit and has like a little bit more safety around it. So yeah, in my talk, we just, I just kind of go through an example of like how you use those tools, how you can define calls to certain modules and functions in a running system. I also talk about match specs, which is perhaps like the most powerful part of that. Let's say like, you know, there's a problem only when a certain user does something. And you know it gets like to this module and function, and you, but you don't want to log out like a thousand calls to that, right? You just want to match when that user's UUID gets passed in or something like that. So we talk about match specs and how you can use that to like really hone in the debugging. And then kind of the, well, yeah, I don't want to give away the punchline yet, but we cover um, Freddie Bear's recon library, which kind of wraps those things in a really like a good, safe, battle-tested interface that stops you from shooting yourself in the foot when you try to introspect this kind of stuff. So we talk about like what that actually gives you and how you can use it. And yeah, that's kind of what the talk goes over. Awesome. And if you had to gauge what the level of experience for the audience would be for your talk, what would you say that would be? I think like to use everything that I'm talking about, probably intermediate. But I think there's value to beginners too, just to like be aware that these tools are there and you can test them out on non-production systems. You can try them out locally, right? Anywhere you can get an Elixir or Erlang shell, you can use these things. So it's certainly something that anyone of any experience level should be familiar with and kind of know that those tools are there. You might not need to know all the syntax and ins and outs offhand, but certainly like just being aware of them is helpful for anybody at any level. Cool. Yeah, so I've done some, we had a client that was on like Python, I think a few months ago, and it was like so weird to go back to not being able to introspect. <laughs> so I, like the beam is right. like pretty amazing for that. All right, so was there anything like interesting or surprising that you didn't know before starting writing this talk and doing researching? Yeah, I think so. There's one thing that I, I didn't really know and then a couple things that have kind of come out of this that, I'd like to dig into more. One thing I didn't really know, I learned this, I don't know, technique, I guess, initially using the recon library. And I didn't really know how capable the built-in tools were, the SysTrace module, and particularly the debug module. There's still some ways you can like shoot yourself in the foot using those because they're a little bit lower level and they're not as batteries included, I guess. But if you 
are rolling onto a new project that doesn't have recon installed and all you have is the built-in stuff and you can get a shell and there's a problem, you can definitely tackle it without the higher level tools. And then the stuff I'd like to to follow up more on is I'd like to dig more into like what recon really gives you. And it's like a really well battle-tested library. So there's I'd like to learn more about what that gives you on top of the other options. And then I'm, I'm really, recon doesn't do distributed tracing. It only works on a single node. So it seems like it would be possible to build something that worked in a distributed system better, but I imagine it's a lot harder than you'd expect. Because the part of the problem is like, there's a lot you have to clean up when you shut down a trace or like even if your shell disconnects, right? You don't want to leave like processes running that are introspecting all of your production traffic or something like that that can add a lot of load to your system. And Recon handles that all really well on a single node. It seems like there should be ways to build that that work distributed, but it's probably a lot more work than I would think. But I'd like to look into that a little bit more. Can I just jump in real quick and ask you like how you came up with this idea to talk about this? Yeah, I don't, I've kind of known about these tools for a while. And I guess usually it just comes up time to time at work, right? Like somebody else will have a, a problem where this happens a lot with uh, dealing with Kafka consumers and stuff. Yeah, Someone will like be publishing a message on one side and then it doesn't work on the other side. And you don't know, like, is it not being published? Is it not hitting the consumer? Is it hitting the consumer and then blowing up? So this kind of tool can be really helpful once it could just be like an environment configuration, right? Like maybe your environment variables pointing to the wrong topic or something like that, right? It can be something that simple, but it's something that you can't really recreate locally. So that happens a lot. Not a lot. It happens at work sometimes. And it can be really frustrating to debug. So it's one of those tools that I, I reach for and I maybe take for granted like how much exposure to it other people have had. So yeah, that's why I'm giving the talk is to help help other people get that exposure. Awesome. So speaking of talks, are there other talks that you're excited to hear or attend yourself at ElixirConf? Yeah, I was just looking over the page earlier. And first off, I just want to say the lineup looks great. Like there's so many good speakers and such a variety of talks. I'm really impressed at the, the lineup that they've scheduled out. If I just had to pick a couple offhand, I'm kind of looking forward to Luciano's talk. He's talking about building a new data structure. And particularly in the end of his blurb, he said something about using protocols or enumerable and collectible. Collectible is one of those things where I'm like, I think there's some really cool things I could do with this, but I, I never know what to reach, like when to reach for it. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing a good example of that. And then also Catalina's talk about gRPC and Elixir microservices. We do some stuff at Bleacher Report with protobufs. We don't use like full gRPC, but I'm just kind of curious on another take of like coordinating services using something else other than JSON over HTTP. Awesome. Yeah, Luciano might be coming on the show right after this. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, he will be flattered to hear that you're looking forward to his talk. I don't know. Will we tell him though? We're not live, so it's not like he would know unless we told him. We should tell him. Yeah, we should tell him. It's really hey, it's nice to hear. I'm sure we'll be happy to hear that. Very cool. Well, listen, we've got a little bit of time left. I want to make sure that you've got a platform to plug anything that you want to plug. Shameless self-promotion is encouraged. If there's anything else that you wanted to say about your talk that without giving away the gander or is that the, that's not a saying, I just make these sayings up. So yeah, the floor is yours. Yeah, I don't have a ton to talk about. I'm not doing a lot of like open source work right now. One thing I do want to plug though is the KC Elixir meetup group. It was just like a local in-person group, but given the state of the world, we've kind of gone remote and you can go to kcelixir.com to see what talks are coming up and you can join our Slack and, and join the talks too if they fit your, your time zone and everything. 
it's a really great group. Some really smart people. A lot of them speak in the community too. So it's just an awesome group. And if you can like fit that in your schedule to come to some of our meetups, it'd be super great. It's a great group. That is nice. a very, very worthy plug. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much, Jeffrey, for joining us on the show. That was Jeffrey Utter, everybody, from Bleacher Report. His talk is titled Debugging Live Systems on the Beam. Check it out at ElixirConf 2020. Next up is Luciano Hamalio from ThoughtWorks. His talk is titled Uint Set, Innumerable, Streamable, and Understandable. Luciano, welcome to Elixir Wizards. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I was, I'm honored to be here because I'm also honored to be selected to speak at ElixirConf. It's going to be my first international talk about Elixir. Well, we are looking forward to your talk. And Jeffrey Utter, who was just on before you, said that your talk was the talk that he was most looking forward to seeing. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. So no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, very glad to hear that. So let's just start right at the talk. What is your talk about? Mm -hmm. Give us the elevator pitch. Okay. Basically, the idea is uh, of the talk is I was reading actually a book about Go, the Go programming language, which is one of the finest programming language books ever written, in my opinion. I have a bunch of them. It's written by, well, one of the authors is Kernighan, right? From the K and R, the, the K in Kernighan. In KNR. Anyway, so Carnegie is a great author and the book is awesome. And one of the examples that they have there is a set type that holds integers. But instead of, of holding each integer in its own word, it uses just one bit per integer because it uses like a bit vector, right? And so I thought that was a really cool idea. And then I started implementing it in other languages to see how that goes in other languages. And the first language that I implemented it is in Python, which is my specialty. And then I implemented it in, in Elixir. And in Python and Elixir are very interesting. If you do this exercise of implementing this set type, you discover that it's much easier to do it in those languages because both languages have arbitrary precision integers, right? And so basically what they did in Go using an array of uints to hold the bits. In Elix, we use just one integer. The integer holds the entire set of integers. And how does that work? If bit zero is one, that means zero is a number in the set. If bit zero is zero, then there is no zero in the set, and so on, right? So that's the idea. And so this is a kind of a fun, interesting way to think about how to implement a set. And then the idea of the talk is to show how to put on top of this implementation that's completely different from the implementation of map sets in the language. But you can put an interface on top of it that looks exactly like map sets with the difference of a single method. So this wasn't the elevator pitch, right? Anyway, (laughs) so the difference was a single method, which is the method uh, size becomes length, right? Because of the convention. That in my case, I have to actually go through all the bits to count them in order to answer the size or is it the length? I forgot now. Anyway, one of them is supposed to work when you have the answer directly and regardless of the size of the collection and the other one if you have to traverse, right? So the elevator pitch, how you can implement data structure that is 
if your metric elixir using the API that you can get inspiration from another existing data structure. And in order to do that, you leverage protocols and you also leverage streams, which are two cool features. That's really interesting. So if you had to choose an audience or if you had to give an idea of what kind of audience, beginner, intermediate, advanced, what would you say the audience would be for this talk? So I tagged it intermediate because I think understanding anybody who uses Elixir is using protocols, but they may not know, right? And so I think one of the things that differentiates somebody that's a beginner from an intermediate programmer in a language is when the person starts to understand how the main abstractions actually work. And the intention of this talk is actually to show that. How do you implement a protocol? And how do you implement a streaming API? Cool. Eric? Yeah. Uh, was there anything as like as part of giving this talk? And I mean, I guess maybe it was just as part of writing it in Elixir. Was anything interesting or surprising that you were you were doing that you learned from researching this? Yeah, the, I think the first pleasant surprise was to see that it has this arbitrary size integer, which makes the implementation super easy. And then it was actually my excuse for myself to learn how to implement protocols, right? I think it's mm. a very good way to understand how these things work if you can do it, do something of your own that uses them. It doesn't mean that in our daily lives, we as Elixir programmers are going to be implementing new protocols all the time. But it's, it's important to know how the protocols that exist work. And also, if you work in a product company that wants to create libraries or expose APIs, then it's important to understand how to do interfaces that, uh, you know, idiomatic. And basically, you write idiomatic code by imitating code that's considered idiomatic, right? This is what I was going to ask is with such a new language and ecosystem, how do you know what's idiomatic? Do you have any resources that you use to develop a sense of what is idiomatic elixir? Well, basically looking at the standard library, I think that's that's the best way to see idiomatic code, I think. And the advantage of this example of mine over MapSet, which is in the standard library, is that the implementation of UintSet is much simpler. Of course, it's much more limited, right? Because it's a set where you can only put numbers, <laughs> integers. You can't put anything else. But basically, pretty much the vast majority of the functions in the interface are one-liners and short lines at that. Hmm. Because, for instance, how do you compute the intersection between the two sets, right? It's just a bitwise end. <laughs> That's it. So basically, it's uh, three ampersands that you import from a bitwise module. And then you put the bits of one set, three ampersands, the bits of one the other set, intersection, done. Great. This is a maybe a, an interesting question, but what are you hoping to kind of gain from, or what are you hoping the audience gains from your talk? So my claim to fame so far is that I've written a book about Python called Fluent Python. Okay, And the book was very well received. It was translated to eight different languages. I wrote it in English, but it was translated to several other languages. Yeah, and so I became kind of, when I taught Python over the years, I taught Python to a lot of people coming from Java, for instance, or C++. And then these people were always looking for things that they missed in their languages and sometimes not finding other things that 
Python provides because the approach is different. So my focus as I study Elixir is the same. I think when you approach a new language, you have to be humble, right? If there is something that you feel is missing because you, you used this other language before and you don't find this feature in this new language, mm. it's probably not a lack of vision <laughs> of the designer of the new language. It's more likely that there is another way of doing it, another approach that solves the problem. So my idea to this talk is to show particularly protocols, I think are very important for you to understand how a lot of the idiomatic data structures in the language work. And once you understand them, then I think you can leverage what's already there better and you're better prepared to create your own data structures when that's necessary. Great, awesome. So Luciano, we want to give you the rest of the time to plug anything that you like, promote your talk or any mm -hmm. projects that you're working on or any companies right, that you're right. working for. Yep. We'll edit this out, but we do have one other question before that. Oh yeah. So <laughs> what's another talk that you are interested in, in watching? Yeah. Well, thank you. I kind of prepared for that, but it's super hard for me to pick one talk because Elixir conference for me is always very exciting. I was there the last two years in person. And uh, it's exciting because it's a language that is used in very interesting domains, right? IoT, for instance, there's a lot of stuff. And it's also exciting because if you pick a topic, like for instance, I know you just interviewed Japa Swadia. Sorry, I probably mispronounced her name. Didn't know? We actually didn't get she had to reschedule today, so we'll. Oh, okay. We're, so, we're gonna sorry. we're gonna talk to her tomorrow and edit. Okay. Her anyway, the audience is part of the show here. They'll yeah. Okay. <laughs> Any, anyway, her talk is domain driven design with Elixir. So domain driven design, everybody talks. have been talking about that for years in other in other communities, but it's interesting. The Elixir twist for me makes it interesting, right? How do we approach this? And also, uh, Stephen Busse's talk, the joy of an Elixir monolith. I think it's super interesting when you see this whole movement towards Docker and cloud and Kubernetes and so on. And they're basically reinventing everything <laughs> that Vix or the Erlang ecosystem has had for more than 20 years, right? And for me, as a consultant, it's interesting to understand how much does the Elixir ecosystem or the Erlang ecosystem actually needs this stuff and how do we interoperate with this other modern architecture. So the joy of an Elixir monolith sounds like a very good title for me because no Elixir application is as monolithical <laughs> as a Ruby application or as a Python application, right? Because of the very nature of the infrastructure. Yeah, so I was also interested in the case. The case is about using Elixir for COVID-19 monitoring and for monitoring hydropower plants with nerves. And then live view is an exciting topic for me. And also teaching. I love to teach, but I think I said that I was at a nerves meetup last year during ElixirConf. And I said that as a teacher, I feel like nerves is super cool. Elixir is also super cool. But the ecosystem is kind of geared towards engineers. How do you do a hello world in Elixir? Ooh. <laughs> you have to learn a lot of tooling to do that. 
Of course, there are now terminals on the web that you can use to play around with Elixir. That's interesting. But I think we should, as a community, I would love to see us develop something that is like processing.org. You know that? So processing.org is a, a very simple IDE that allows you to draw stuff using a very well-chosen subset of Java. It makes Java accessible to beginners, makes it fun. And there's this very simple API that's basically for artists to expressive. Used, yeah, do you like that? I used it in college. I did some really cool stuff. I generated some really cool art and then laser printed it on plexiglass. I think oh, that was that's the most awesome. fun I ever had in college. Yeah. So that's this awesome. processing.org is real? Processing.org is the, the name of the place. Well, when you said it made Java fun, I thought it was like yeah. you're joking. You're just <laughs> no, making something no, I know. up. Same feeling here, you know. It's, it's, it, this I know. It was a radical statement, and it's true, isn't it, Sunday? <laughs> yeah. No, it was very fun. I'll have to go dig up some of the art I made with that code. No, to begin with, the code's gone, but the art's around. Yeah. Oh, cool. To begin with, you don't need to create a class to do anything. You're basically implementing methods because there is kind of a a god class that's an anti-pattern, but in that case, it's really great because it just you create methods and then you it works. It's great. Yeah, so I'm excited about a lot of stuff. I love this conference. And I also like that there's a, I saw there's a nerves talk. Oh, yeah, Eric, Eric Ostrich. Uh, uh. Is that you? Well, oh, we, but we, you have, you're, you probably have a lot less beard than I see here. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to save this. Uh, Luciano, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the show. I want to give you a minute to plug anything that you want to plug, shameless self promotion. Yeah. Take it. Well, I don't know what to plug. I was at another conference the other day, Pi Bay, where they have a hallway track in an online conference, which I really enjoyed. I hope we can come up with something like that during Elixir Conf as well, because I love to meet people at conferences. Mm -hmm. So if I want to plug something, I would plug, please come up with me and let's talk like we're talking now, you know, maybe with a glass of beer. And I would really enjoy that. Okay. And thank you, Eric, for your talk. I think that's going to be super interesting. Beginner nerves talk. Luciano Hamalio, everyone from ThoughtWorks. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to hearing your talk. You int set, innumerable, streamable, and understandable. And up next is Melvin Cedeno from where? Where do you work, Melvin? Oh, I work at SmartLogic. So oh, really? How is that? consultancy you might have heard of it that's not too bad not too bad they treat me good they treat you good they treat you all right is, yeah. um is the team over there like are they smart do you learn anything where i hear the term is they're smart logicans logicans something like that who knows <laughs> oh man it's not cringe it's not cringe at all. <laughs> <laughs> super glad to have you back on the show melvin yeah that's right Melvin works with Smart Logic now, so now we have an entire segment of just Smart Logic wizards here. Melvin, you're giving a talk at ElixirConf 2020. I am. What's it called? Give us the elevator pitch. For sure. So it's called Teaching Functional Programming with Elixir, and essentially just things I've learned from teaching intro to Elixir classes over the past like two years. But yeah, that's pretty much just like that's the elevator pitch. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about I mean, it sounds like you've got a specific sort of experience level that you're targeting. Can you talk a little bit like about who should come and what they'd be getting out of the talk by attending? Yeah, I'd say if your company has any sort of like training where they are educating folks, it might be a good talk to attend. 
just because one thing I've learned over the years is that just because you can do something doesn't mean you can necessarily teach it. I mean, this mm. is just some, some of the things I've learned from teaching a couple of the classes yeah, over the past like two years, give or take, or like two years. Yeah, yeah I actually heard a, a hot take recently about how the worst person to teach something is an expert on it yeah. or teach it to a beginner. Because if you're an expert, you might like overthink the way you, you teach it. So you have to really think about that. So be interesting to hear your take on that in your talk. It's been fun. It's been interesting trying to figure out what exactly my process is and like how I came to it. But a lot of it's things mm -hmm. I've learned from uh, like martial arts and playing guitar and leading chamber choirs and stuff over the years. And you lead little... chamber choir? I did chamber choir for like 10 years. And Bro, that's I the used coolest to run thing I've the ever heard. section and the bass section. Just like that was music was a big part of like my background. Like you had a guitar back Do you there know about that. shape note singing? Shape note singing. I've not heard of this. <laughs> oh, man. Dude, when you come out here, we're going to go shape note singing. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> What's up? You can, you're probably going to school me because I don't know anything. But uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend that does this. Shape note singing? He's big into Yeah. It's really cool. I think anyone can do it. It's easy to learn. I actually don't even really know what I'm doing. I kind of just sound it out. I'm not at all an expert, but I... I love to go when I can. Yeah, I was curious, Melvin, like, because you've got an interesting background and so thought that maybe you could touch on it and kind of how it led you to the genesis of this idea. You mentioned several of the sort of hobbies, et cetera, that you have, but like talk about the the idea. Sunday's cat is distracting me. Talk about like kind of how you came up with the idea and like a little bit about your background that might have led you there. Yeah. So I went to Turing. It is a coding boot camp type school. Oh. It's like seven months long. And during my time there, I got really heavily involved with mentoring. I still mentor folks. I probably have like 12 or 15 mentees right now. Wow. And at some point, I started teaching intro to Elixir classes, mainly because I wanted folks to have other things on their resumes that would help them stand out in their job hunt. And the classes, people liked them, and I liked teaching them. And I just kind of kept doing them, whether it was just like big class, like 20 people plus, or like one-on-ones, or two to three, kind of just kept doing them. And I saw the Elixir comp, they were asking for speakers and I figured, huh, well, I could probably do something on teaching classes because I feel like that's probably irrelevant, especially now that everything's remote. So I had to do a couple of classes remote and a couple of things I learned from that, which I thought would be a lot harder, but I think it kind of made things easier in a way, if that makes any sense. Uh, um, talk about it. I don't know. It made me a lot more focused. Like when I was in a room with folks or like in the basement at Turing, I'd like rely heavily on the whiteboard and I'd kind of just wing a lot of things. But now that it's remote, I kind of have to be more cautious of people's time. So it made me just really drill down and like get my curriculum down, get the agenda, have all the timing set. So it kind of forced me to become more, what's the word, organized. So that's kind of like a weird little benefit that came out of the whole remote teaching is like it kind of just makes you like, all right, what exactly do you need versus like before I could just talk to a room, have a whiteboard, and then it would just yeah. kind of go all over the place. But they'd still find it useful. But I think the classes have gotten better. I can tell you, Melvin, from having worked with you now for a little while, that you're probably the only person I know. And sorry to everyone else's smart logic, but Melvin will call me and he'll be like, he'll be like, hey, you have three minutes. And the call will take exactly three minutes. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes. I have three minutes for you, Melvin. Because Perfect. it's actually three minutes. <laughs> um, That's awesome. 
when you were putting together or researching for the presentation, was there anything that you found particularly interesting or surprising while you were researching? I was trying to figure that out. Yes. So I think a lot of it has been really me like narrowing down, figure out what is my actual process? Like, why do I teach the way I do? Mm-hmm. Why do I mentor the way that I mentor? And a lot of it just comes down to like all my experience and background in music. Like when you're teaching a piece or teaching like a musical concept, it's kind of the same kind of deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't realize how much of that like overlapped. So I started really like breaking it down because before I'd just be like, all right, I have a curriculum. I have some folks, let's do it. But this talk has actually really like forced me to like think about why, because I, originally I was thinking like, oh, well, I have a curriculum. It's like six hours long. I could take parts of that and make a 20 minute talk. But really it's like the talk's barely going to go into the curriculum like at all. Like it's just going to be things that I've learned from teaching and having TAs, how to manage TAs, how to bring them in, make sure everyone feels like the time that they're spending is valuable. (laughs) So I bet that we have a lot of people listening right now that are interested in one day speaking at ElixirConf. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about how you pitched the concept to Jim and in the CFP. Yeah, like I woke up on a Thursday morning and it's already something I've been doing. So went to the site and was like, hey, teaching intro to programming with intro to functional programming with Elixir. And I just gave him some snippets of my curriculum and just like ideas of things I've learned, but it wasn't anything like I overthought. Like Mm -hmm. I maybe spent like 20 minutes on the whole like pitch. Yeah. I remember we had a, an internal meeting of like who all wants to speak and we kind of pitched ideas of what we would want to do. And then this was like two weeks before the deadline. And then I remember like later that afternoon, Melvin was like, all right, I've submitted. <laughs> and we were all like, wow, that was fast. <laughs> so that's, that's amazing. amazing. My favorite LixirConf talk submission story is that I submitted my 2017 talk the day after the deadline, thinking I definitely wouldn't get it and that I had to get it and actually do the talk. <laughs> so now so I've gotten excited. out of yeah I've gotten out of doing future talks by becoming the MC. So now I just don't have to prepare. I can just uh, show up. And, no, I'm just kidding. There's lots of prep that goes into being the MC. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. Is there another talk that you're excited about at ElixirConf that you're you know hoping to attend? The testing one. I don't know who I, who it's by, but that one and there's a meta programming talk. That's probably like my new big jam right now is just meta programming. Been playing around with procs and stuff in Ruby lately, thanks to Eric. I'm in our one on ones that kind of opened up the the floodgates. So it's been interesting just like using procs, but also like, okay, I probably shouldn't be teaching my mentees what this is yet <laughs> because they don't know what it is and they'll just use it and then they'll get asked about it. And that's fun. <laughs> Mm. So that's Nicholas Henry, The Upside Dimension of Elixir, an Introduction to Metaprogramming. I think so. Yeah, that sounds right. And then probably the test one is Brian Merrick, Tricks and Tools for Writing Elixir Tests. There's only one talk on tests at this whole conference. There's one on testing live view as well. Ah, I see it. German Velasco. Could be his talk. We're looking forward to all of these talks. It's going to be a great conference. Melvin, we've did we meet at ElixirConf? We did. We've met at two of them. I think the first time we met, you were emceeing at ElixirConf. And I just like shook your hand, said hi. And Last then year? At 2019, yeah. 
so and then at lone star i think we officially like hung out yeah lone star we were hanging out i remember lone star i remember you saying that we met see i'm starting to put things together i'm starting to remember (laughs) very cool well we've got a little bit of time left i want to make sure you know if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about about your talk or ElixirCon for any of the things that you're looking forward to there or you've got as much time as you'd like to plug anything that you'd like to plug and shameless mm-hmm. self-promotion is encouraged advertising <laughs> for smart logic is definitely encouraged if you want to score points with the big boss that might be an optimal strategy uh, but <laughs> the time is yours and i will yield it to you for sure two things definitely uh check out smart logic we're great as you can tell and then another thing is i'm going to be teaching intro to otp class probably in the next couple of weeks so if there are any senior devs out there who are willing to volunteer a Saturday afternoon slash morning, a couple hours, I'll buy you coffee. We'd love to have you. So and it would be helping to teach like current bootcamp students. So they might be a couple weeks in, a couple months in. So but it'll be very introductionary. Melvin Cedeno, everybody from Smart Logic. His talk is teaching functional programming with Elixir. Say hello at ElixirConf 2020. Looking forward to your talk, Melvin. Thanks for coming on the show. No problems. And next up, we have Japa Swadia from Podium. Her talk is titled Domain-Driven Design with Elixir. We've been talking a lot about domain-driven design this season on the show, Japa. Can you sell us on your talk a little bit? Give us the elevator pitch. Sure, yeah. Hi, everyone. This is Chapa. And so like you mentioned, I think domain driven design is like in a certain sense is a pretty common topic. And of course, like Phoenix introduced that in version 1.3. So it's been around for a while. I just felt the need to resurrect it for this year's ElixirCon because I think I have learned so much over the past couple of years with just applying domain driven design to the code that I write. And this is mainly because uh, what I was working before, like just years ago, did not have a lot of domain complexity. So it didn't really, you know, the whole DDD concept, when I first read about it, it didn't really apply to what I was working on. I couldn't quite relate. But once I started working on this a new product, which involved a ton of domain complexity and it just grew over time, I could really see the benefits of using DDD, especially with context and schemas in Elixir. So I'm a big fan of them. I am sold. And what I'm trying to do with my talk is trying to sell on uh, the viewers, especially beginners who are looking into creating apps that are maintainable, easy to refactor, easy to collaborate on, and have like clean internal and external APIs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that you could maybe do like a high level definition of DDD? We've done that a lot on the show in previous episodes. So love to hear your definition of it. Sure. Yeah. So let me just put it this way. DDD as a philosophy, it's it's a pretty simple concept. It just means building your application centered on the domain. So and the domain would be the real life use case. Right. So if say if you're a bike shop and that's the example that I'm going to use in my talk. Your domain is a bike shop. You don't care about anything else, right? So that's your domain. And then if you're talking about the software or the CRM or anything that you do for your bike shop, it has its own context, right? Like you have the context of a product, which could be a bike, could be a part. And then you might have context like a sale or a rental, right? Like those are two different contexts because you might have a customer that wants to rent a bike as opposed to buy a bike. 
So there might be some things that would be different in terms of the use case for that piece of logic or for that functionality in the system. So I think it's domain-driven design. It You don't have to like follow it step by step. But if you just think about your domain, do a little bit of initial legwork and just thinking about what different contexts your domain would have and then start writing code, I think that is really helpful and it, it provides like a solid foundation to to your app or like any piece of code that you're wanting to write. I guess I might have ranted off a little bit here, but yeah, I think for me, domain-driven design is just thinking about the domain of your app and just figuring out the different contexts that you might have. And also kind of think going one step further and thinking about your APIs and those could be internal or external. And I think that really helps if you have the domain in mind. Can you talk a little bit about the target audience for your talk? Like who should come to domain-driven design with Elixir? Sure. So I think beginners should definitely attend. Because and speaking from personal experience, and also I've seen a lot of, I've onboarded a lot of junior engineers and beginners on my team with Elixir. And this is what I've seen. They're, they don't really know where to start. They know how to write the code, but they don't really know where that, that thing goes. So what I always urge them is to, Go to the directory structure. I think in Elixir, it's pretty clear and readable. You have your business logic in one side and then your web interfaces in like a separate directory, right? So it's, it's really easy to kind of just walk through. So that's what I always tell them is just go figure out what different contexts we have and then see if you can make sense of where your new functionality should live. Uh, yeah, so th I think that's also an interesting point that comes up in code reviews as well. So definitely would encourage beginners to come to this talk. I won't be talking in depth about domain-driven design as a philosophy. I know there's like a book written on it, but it's more about using DDD in Elixir, using context and schemas and, you know, other ecto goodness like uh, change sets. And really, honestly, anybody else can attend to if they if they're working on something that's like super technical, but wanting to switch to writing something that's more domain oriented, then yeah. So one question possibly might be in your talk. Do you talk about how like you can use schemas to point at the same table in different contexts? Like, have you done that? Is that something that's like useful to you? I don't have an exact example. I was going to talk about, I guess, shared contexts and kind of like dependencies between schemas that kind of, you know, how we can have associations and just have those relationships be defined in the schemas. So I was going to talk about that for sure. I don't think I have an exact example of what you just mentioned. Yeah, I've, I've just seen it tossed around as something that's possible with Ecto. And like I've tried it before and had weird experiences. So I was just curious if maybe not in your talk, but at Podium, if you've done that at all. Um, so yeah, just to restate your question, it's using two different schemas to point to the same yeah, so it's like table. each context will have their own like local schema. Right. Or like an embedded schema kind of thing where it's... Yeah, not an embedded one. So like in your example, if you have a bike table, like bikes right. table. So like the rental yeah. might have their own bike schema and the sales might have their own yes. schema. And then right. there might just be like a bike schema that manages both or I don't know. So like right. that, that's kind of what's been tossed around as like an option and just curious if you've done that before so i have done that from like an api layer point of view where you have these different schemas that validate the data that that is related to that context so for example there's a sales context and there's a rental context and then for those the schema for the product or the customer might be different 
So, so yeah, on the API layer, I've definitely used change sets to validate those. And then further down in the business logic side, when you actually want to do inserts or updates, you might be casting that to a different schema that is related to the actual database table. So yeah, definitely on the API layer, and I'm a huge fan of uh, using those for validations. Cool. While you're putting together this talk, was there anything that was interesting or surprising that like came about through researching? I think a little bit of research that I did was go through the old pull requests in the core libraries, because I know they did some work to refactor some of the modules to be more domain-driven. So that was pretty interesting, seeing how they just pick file and then they literally cleaned it up and created these different contexts and made it so much easier for the other modules to be able to use them. So that was pretty interesting. I'm actually still researching for more of the refactoring work, and I really want to show the audience on what changes the core team has made. So is there another talk that you're really excited about attending as well? Great question. I actually had a bunch of talks that I was interested in. I think one of them was a solar panels being powered using Elixir. I I don't remember the title. I need to check that out. But There's that's a really hydropower one. Was it that the one? hydropower one, yes. Not solar. My bad. <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting. There's also one with that has Phoenix Live View. I have a few uh, coworkers who are really into Live View. So I'm yeah, I'm kind of excited for that. And I actually have them listed out here. <laughs> Let me just Oh, yeah. And the other one that was interesting was using Elixir and WhatsApp to launch WHO's global COVID-19 response. I think I'm looking forward to that one as well. Yeah, it seems like they really knocked it out of the park with talks. Despite this being a virtual conference, the lineup is extremely nicely put together, yourself included, Joppa. <laughs> I'm curious how, when you framed your CFP, is there anything you think you did really well that got your talk accepted? Because I'm sure people are watching this or listening and wondering, well, how do I get a talk accepted into a big <laughs> conference like Elixir Conf? I honestly did not expect that my talk would be selected. And mainly because I felt that the topic might be like a repeat topic. Because I know other Elixir conferences, people have spoken about domain-driven design and everybody has like different opinions, viewpoints. But what I put in my proposal was also me and my experience with domain-driven design. So I'm hoping that my personal storytelling aspect of it and my experience with kind of going from an app which had no domain complexity to building something that has a ton of domain complexity and, you know, my journey with learning all that and, you know, being sold on context and schemas is what I thought would could be like the, the winning element for my proposal. Well, I think it's a very hot topic in the community right now. I know we've been talking about it nonstop for this whole season, which is a very long season of Elixir. And we will keep talking about it because there's we've got a bunch <laughs> recorded that <laughs> we keep asking. Right. I do have a advanced topics in mind, but this is actually my first time speaking at the global conference level. So I thought I would just keep something that's more in my comfort zone and also that comes from my experience so that I can also answer questions if there's any. So yeah, I'm well, excited. we are looking forward to your talk and hopefully maybe we can have you back on the show to dive even deeper into this subject for a full episode. I want to give you the last few minutes to plug anything that you want to plug, shamelessly self-promote, anything you want to shamelessly self-promote, the floor is yours. <laughs> 
I don't have anything to self-promote, but yeah, I mean, ElixirCon 2020, if you look at the talks, they sound really interesting. And if you are a beginner or even if you're not a beginner, but looking to refactor your apps, kind of want to learn some tricks to make your apps be more maintainable, easy to collaborate on, write cleaner APIs, then yeah, just come check out my talk. I hope to do a good job, but I would also love to kind of know the thoughts from everybody in the community on how they do domain-driven design or their experiences. So which is what I think is making me more excited for this talk. So yeah. Awesome. Joppa Swadia, everybody from Podium. Her talk is titled Domain-Driven Design with Elixir. That's it for this special episode of Elixir Wizards. We hope you enjoyed this sneak peek of ElixirConf 2020. Go buy a ticket. Thanks very much to my magical co-hosts, Sunday Mint and Eric Ostrich. Eric Ostrich, my oldest friend and beloved co-host, Eric Ostrich. And once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new and interesting projects building web applications in Elixir, Rails, React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a project we could help you with, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So add us on all of those. You can find me personally at Just Use a Pen and Eric at Eric Ostrich and Sunday at Sundaykin. That's S U N D I K H I N. Check the notes for links to all those and join us again next week on Elixir Wizards. Bye.